Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. The Biden administration is preparing for another surge at our southern border here, and it was it was predicted a long time ago. Now, with plans to deploy 1,500 members of the U.S. military ahead of the lifting of Title 42 COVID restrictions. To remind you, that's coming up. It's May 11th. And joining us is Congressman Henry Cuellar, the Democrat from Texas, whose district runs from San Antonio down to the Rio Grande. This issue is a local one for him. And Congressman, we welcome you back to Bloomberg. It's a pleasure being with you again. Thank you. Well, thank you, sir. The Biden administration is making some news here, sending 1,500 troops to the border ahead of Title 42 restrictions coming down next week. Is this the right move? Well, you know, certainly uh, bringing in 1,500 additional personnel for 90 days will help uh, CBP, the men and women in green and blue on the ground. Uh, This 1,500 uh, additional Department of of, uh, Defense uh, personnel is in addition to the 2,500 that we have on the ground already. And keep in mind that this active members uh, that are coming in, they do not have law enforcement uh, uh, authority, so they are more here to support the other 2,500 military personnel that are supporting mm-hmm. the ISS. That is, they're there to support so you can have the men and women in green and blue go out and do their work, uh, and, and that's where they belong, you know, securing the border. Is it the right number? Is this enough? Well, you know, it, it, it depends on both the, uh, the the secretary. I will support them, you know, both the Homeland Secretary and the Defense Secretary. Uh, I do want to say that having uh, military personnel, the 2,500, the, uh, the the additional 1,500, I think this 1,500 are mainly from Army units. And again, they will not participate in law enforcement activities, but it, it, they're there to support. They're there to support. Uh, the uh, the homeland security agents that we have on the border. You said at the end of last year, Congressman, that the Border Patrol does not think the Biden administration has their back. Do you also feel that way? Well, you know, I I, I think there's uh, policy uh, differences, but I think now the administration is starting to do things that some of us have pushed uh, for a long time. Look, I've always said that money is important when it comes to homeland security. And I do want to emphasize that in the last two years, if you look at the Trump administration as a point, the last year of Trump administration to now, we actually have added $2.4 billion more to the CBP 
budget. That's a 15% increase. So money is important to put on border security, but you got to have the right policies. You got to have consequences. If people come to the border and they think that the border is a speed bump mm. and they'll be there held temporarily and then moved into the U.S., you're going to have more and more and more people come in. You got to be able to say at the border who stays and who gets returned. And the consequences uh, are you got to return people that don't belong here. And that's what's important. It's not only the funding, but it's also the right policy at the yeah. border. And I think the Biden administration is without due respect, is finally doing the right thing after two years. Wow. This is a very different conversation uh, than we had last time you were with us. Uh, As you know, the administration has put in place uh, exceptions for Cuba, Haiti, and Nicaragua like we have for Venezuela. Is that helping or creating more problems at the border? You know, uh, I I understand why they're doing that because we don't have the best relationships with Nicaragua, with uh, Cuba, with Venezuela, uh, Venezuela, but I do want to say that now ICE is starting to return people to Cuba and to Nicaragua. Uh, Venezuela, uh, Venezuela, that still hasn't happened because it's a very difficult country to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that does uh, provide a magnet in many ways uh, to get more people coming in from those countries. And as you know, if you go to Brownsville, what is the number one uh, uh, group that's coming in. It's people from Venezuela. So the work gets out there uh, that uh, you will be paroled one way or the other. It's pretty remarkable, uh, Congressman Cuellar, when you see uh, politicians from Washington make the nine-hour trip to the border and the amount of coverage that they get on cable news and the sort of photo opportunities that happen. But you're there all the time. This is home for you. And I wonder if you feel like you have the ears of your colleagues on Capitol Hill and at the White House. Do they want to know your firsthand experience? And you're right. I always say, you know, I have a lot of my colleagues. Oh, I went down to the border. It's been a couple hours out there. And I always say, well, you know, I live there. You know, I, I live there. And, and actually, when I uh, go to Washington is when I leave the border. Right. I, I think there are some people there are some people that are listening. Uh, I, I think Homeland has been very good. Uh, you know, again, without due respect to the White House, there's still some White House staffers there that think very differently. They think letting people in, manage people at the border, bring them in is the right thing. And I disagree with that, unless if it's a legitimate uh, claim. Uh, But I think there's a lot of career people at Homeland that want to do the right thing. And I always said, you know, for Homeland, you got to do appointments, uh, appoint people, don't make it a political appointee. They're all political appointees. But uh, you know, make sure it's a career person that understands that wants to do the right thing. Consequences. If you don't have consequences at the border, then the border becomes a speed bump. And therefore, you're going to have record numbers like the first two years, yeah. 4.3 million individuals. And that doesn't even include getaways. Well, so what are Americans going to see on their TV screens, on their phones? What stories are they going to hear me tell? come May 11th when Title 42 comes down? What are these images going to look like? You know, I think they're going to see people coming to the border in large amounts. And, and, and again, the, the administration finally, after two years, is finally putting some uh, policies in place that I think will have an impact. But I wish they would have uh, implemented that earlier you will see an impact after May 11th. I don't know by when, yeah. if they implement it correctly. For example, let me go over things real quickly. Number one, 
there's an agreement between uh, Panama, Colombia, uh, the U.S. to slow down people at the Darien Gap. That's the part of Panama where they're coming in in large numbers. They slow those people. You play defense on the 20-yard line instead yeah. of the one-yard line called the U.S. border. That's number one. Yep. That agreement is good. The second thing is they, there are some processing centers in Colombia and Panama, which is good. You know, screen those people before they come in. Who has a legitimate right to come into the U.S.? Because if you look at it, uh, depending on the country, there's, you know, there there's times where 88 to 90 percent of the people are going to be rejected by immigration judge. Mm-hmm. So why are we allowing 100 percent when we should be allowing 10 to 12 percent? There are some exceptions. For example, uh, China uh, gets 53 percent of its um, asylum cases granted. Uh, that's the you know that's one of the main countries that get into asylum cases coming in, but a lot of the countries it's a lower number, so that will help. Then uh, there are asylum officers for the first time in border patrol facilities, not in ICE, but in border patrol facilities, and they will make some quick decisions. So it's, uh, should somebody stay or come? If they implement that correctly, we can return a lot of the cases that don't have uh, a legitimate or credibility to that yeah. uh, situation. And then finally, there's a new rule, and we're waiting for this new rule that says a couple things. Somebody comes in between a port of entry, we're going to return you. That is correct. Now, the progressives are going to fight that. Uh, certain groups are going to fight that because they think they should come in uh, anyway, through ports of entry, in between ports. But I always say yeah. this. If, if I invite you to dinner uh, and I say I'll see you at 6 o'clock at dinner, but you decide to come through the back door, you decide to come through a window, you decide to come at you know at 3 o'clock instead of 6 o'clock, yeah. first thing I'm going to say, whoa, 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 go back, go back. You know, I told you 6 o'clock and this is the way to come in. Well, that's the way I see a lot of this. The people are coming in through windows, back doors. And they're bringing friends you know, they're with them. Coming in between. Yeah, they're bringing a lot of people. It's like, hey, I'll see you at dinner, but I decided to bring 20 of my cousins. Uh, what are you going to say if I decided to do that? Wow. So that rule is going to be important if they implement it. And the second thing is, which I've been asking for a long time, is if somebody's coming to ask for asylum, they're leaving their country because they have fear. So if they come through another country where their their fear is taken away, they could have asked asylum, then that's a rebuttable presumption that that person should not get asylum here because their fear is gone, is gone. So if if the administration uh, implements all those things correctly, we're going to see some progress after May 11th. But I think May 11th, I wish they would have done this way before so we would have been ready, but they're doing this. At the at the twelfth hour, and I think we're going to see a lot of people trying to cross over at the beginning, but yes, we got to have those consequences. I just wonder if we're going to see these images of thousands of people, you know, living under a bridge with helicopters in the air. I'll tell you, Congressman, I really hope that you can come talk to us a little later on in the month of May to see where we are. But I, I feel like I have to ask you about the debate surrounding the debt ceiling while we're talking. Just quickly, do you want to see a clean debt limit bill, or should President Biden? also be negotiating spending levels with Speaker McCarthy at this point? Well, you know, uh, I, I want to see a clean debt ceiling. Uh, we, we, we've seen this before. You know, I think under Trump, we raised it three times. Uh, I always smile because I knew that when 
I was going to get elected. Uh, you know, some of the you know the other party was going to wake up and say, "Oh, there's uh, there's all this spending." When Trump spent, I think, in four years, uh, added to the debt seven point three trillion dollars in four years. Obama added nine point three in uh, in eight years. Uh, so I always see this. You know, depending who the president is, the other party is going to say something. Uh, and I'm talking about our Republican friends, but. You know, I want to see a, a debt ceiling uh, race uh, suspended, uh, clean. But if not, let's sit down and negotiate, because the last thing we want, yeah. and I say this to the other side, we cannot have we cannot have a default because that's going to cost the uh, the U.S. So we saw that in 2011. Uh, we did it at the very end. And what happened? Uh, the, the U.S. credit w- was downgraded, and that cost. A lot of more money uh, where we're paying now billions of dollars yeah. uh, on interest because of uh, the downgrade. So uh, I want to sit down and work down. I'm, I'm over here in Oklahoma. I was with my good friend, uh, uh, Tom Cole, which, which is an appropriator. And we need folks like Tom Cole, myself, and other folks that were willing to put political affiliations and let's do the right yeah. thing for America. I'll tell you what, all roads lead to Tom Cole's office. I, it's really quite remarkable. <laughs> but we we do have to note, just getting back to where we started here, Congressman, in the world of a default, that would have major implications for the border uh, in terms of funding. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, if we would have a default, imagine what would happen. And, and again, it, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, we got to do the right thing. Uh, you know, we might be Democrats, we might be Republicans, but at the end of the day, we follow, we should follow the, 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 uh, the, the words of President LBJ when he said many years ago, he says, I'm an American, I'm a Texan, and I'm a Democrat, all in that order. And I don't <laughs> care if you're a Democrat or a Republican, we ought to put America first uh, before we put a political party uh, up there. Well, listen, it's great to talk to you, and you're very generous with your time always. We'd love to come back and, and, as I mentioned, see how things are going toward the end of the month. Congressman Henry Cuellar, we thank you for the time. Thank you, and God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Let's assemble the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano with us here on Sound On. Twelfth uh, hour or not, Jeannie, Congressman Cuellar's feelings about the Biden administration, and he had been very critical when he joined us uh, toward the end of last year about this, its handling of the border. Uh, has evolved a lot. What does that tell you about this recent wrinkle from the White House sending more troops, of course, more money to the border? Yeah, I I was surprised. He did seem far more positive about what they're doing, albeit in the 12th hour. And, um, you know, so I think it shows that they are on the right track. I am not sure anything any White House, Republican or Democrat, could do would address this completely. But I do think they are on the right track with everything from the regional processing centers to the troops on the border. The reality is, I mean, I've been listening to the mayor of El Paso. He thinks there are 10 to 12,000 migrants on the border getting ready to come in, sometimes as high as 44,000. And in speaking to people who have come over, they are telling officials that everybody is under the impression that as of May 12th, we are open. So that is a huge problem. And those troops are going to be needed to address that. But it's a short term (coughs) band-aid. We still need a legislative solution. Rick, I know there's a big difference between Laredo, where Congressman Cuellar's district is, and El Paso, uh, which Jeannie refers to here. Uh, How much does this White House, this president, need to worry about the optics that will emerge after these restrictions are lifted? Well, I must say, I'm in Joe, uh, Arizona today, and last night on the uh, news, they were interviewing mayors on the border towns of Arizona, 
And uniformly, Republicans and Democrats alike were uh, uh, lauding the administration for the extra resources of the military. Hmm. Uh, these are these are cities that cannot support this kind of influx of uh, uh, illegal immigration and and see this as a real positive compared to anything else they've seen from this administration for some time. So I do think they are getting some goodwill out of that, as as Congressman Cuellar had mentioned. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, it's not a comprehensive solution. So uh, I think that this is still a problem. A lot more on this with Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano as we walk up on special coverage on this Fed Day here on Bloomberg. We'll hand things over coming up at 1.30 p.m. Washington time with a looming Fed decision here and a lot more with our signature panel straight ahead. It's Sound On, the Wednesday edition. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. So it's a quarter point hike today. That's the expectation, at least, even as a group of Democratic lawmakers here sign a letter to Jay Powell asking him to just stop in light of what we've seen in the banking sector here and a lot of uncertainty that remains, even in the wake of the forced acquisition of First Republic. You saw what happened to regional banking shares yesterday, and they're asking that the Fed just take a breather and see what the lag effect of these rate hikes is, as no one can exactly quantify the impact of what is already broken down in the banking sector. And we're just a short time away from hearing from the Fed and Jay Powell's answers to what I'm sure will be a lot of questions about this in the news conference. None of it adds up to anything very good for this White House going into an election year. We reassemble our panel uh, as we wait to hear from Jay Powell. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are here. Uh, Rick is in Arizona today as they get ready for the big conference in Sedona. And I'll tell you, Rick, the, another rate hike, according to some lawmakers, could be enough to force another uh, another bank failure or at least spook investors into acting like there's another one coming. Uh, the liability for the administration uh, could be pretty high, no? Yeah, uh, Joe, regional bank stocks just got hammered yesterday, raises new concerns about contagion. Uh, this is a problem that the administration just hasn't been able to shrug off. 
and uh, and it's got to play into the Fed decision. So uh, you know, we'll see whether or not the Fed does employ additional rate hike today. But uh, regardless, this kind of instability uh, in the financial markets creates even more instability in the political world that that Joe Biden's trying to uh, to mount a brand new uh, reelection campaign. That's right. And then the question becomes, Jeannie, uh, what's the greater threat? Is it inflation or is it an actual recession or a potential banking crisis? And I'm not sure the White House wants the answer to that right now. That, that's right. I mean, that's quite a choice that they're facing. And, you know, we're, you were just talking about an immigration crisis at the border. We're talking yeah. about, you know, inflation running amok. We're talking about bank failures and a debt ceiling a battle um, that like one we've never seen all on the heels, as, as Rick just mentioned, of Biden announcing. And so we're sort of coming to head with all of these major crises that they've got to combat. And the challenge for Biden, amongst other things, is his numbers on the economy have never been strong. In fact, they've been underwater his entire administration. So this is really the last thing they need. They wanted to say for a long time not to worry about inflation. In fact, it didn't exist. That came back to haunt them. So this is really a challenge for them as they go forward. And you you mentioned Democrats saying, please, please, yes, <laughs> Fed, right. Fed chair, stop. And I, it looks like he may not stop today, but maybe he'll pause it after this. There could well be a pause. The market seems to expect that as well. And again, the market's also been pricing in cuts later in the year. Uh, Rick, Jay Powell doesn't care what lawmakers say, right? If the White House is, is, is deferring to the Fed, certainly Congress doesn't have much say in the matter. Yeah, I don't think it's so much that he ignores them, but um, because they are part of a constituency that he has too, right? He'll have yeah. to testify. He'll have to explain the policy. And and so it's a bit of the echo chamber that he uses to sort of gauge how far the Fed can go out there to be able to try and manage this inflation. And it doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? It affects everything else, the jobs market, mm-hmm. uh, home uh, ownership and, and whatnot. So uh, I think it's a very tenuous position. I think Joe Biden probably will be looking back on this week and thinking, you know, what else could possibly go wrong? He wants to go out and talk about roads, bridges and tunnels and not all all the other things that you just pointed out. Well, you know, Jeannie, that's still a good economic story to tell, is it not? If if we go into an economic downturn this year, that infrastructure money could actually be uh, preserving or creating jobs that wouldn't be there otherwise. Yeah, critically important. And that's what he wants to talk about. It was a major success of his administration. He wants to get out there and he wants to start using that money to fix our badly, you know, falling infrastructure. So that is something that he can take on the road and talk about. But it's awfully hard for him to be both empathetic to people facing financial stress and then to to go try to give a positive message. So that's been the tightrope that they've always been walking throughout this administration. And I don't think it's going to get easier as we move forward. So let's talk about Jay Powell's tightrope uh, that he needs to walk today. We, we're about a half an hour away from the announcement on rates. And then, of course, the news conference follows. He must be envious of his predecessors. He didn't have to do a news conference after every meeting here, Rick. Uh, it's a political exercise no matter what you say. People are going to be showing up today with questions about the banking sector, uh, likely about the political backdrop here, the debt ceiling. These are all questions he's going to have to field along with justifying what the FOMC decides today. Uh, it, it's really changing the contours of the job, isn't it? 
Yeah, no question. And and frankly, the Fed is lucky to have a seasoned hand like Jay Powell uh, at the leadership right now. Uh, this is not a time to be breaking in a new team. And and the fact is, you know, there were a lot of complaints from the Democrats um, uh, about uh, the appointment of Jay Powell. And, and frankly, uh, a lot of people are now thanking their lucky stars that we've got somebody who actually really has a good handle on what the Fed can and can't accomplish mm-hmm. uh, with their policies, it's 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 there are limits, and and his ability to articulate that will be on full display today, as you say, when he addresses the public on why and what he's accomplished. Yeah, of course, there's a lot of scrutiny on the Fed right now, Jeannie, because uh, SVB failed, Signature Bank failed. Even as the Fed was looking and, and, and maybe should have been more aware that there's been a lot of questions about Fed supervision here. Uh, and I wonder how much that keeps him on his heels today. I think he's going to get a number of questions. He came out really quickly and endorsed what Michael Barr recommended, and it was a yeah. pretty tough report. So I think he's going to get an awful lot of questions. I have to say, I think Jerome Powell must be scratching his head and saying, why am I speaking to the press more than Joe Biden these days? <laughs> Which is precisely what seems to be happening and didn't used to happen. But it's, it's critically true. important that he does. He's good at it. He has the knowledge to do it. But it's not going to be easy with the number of issues he's facing. I mean, he probably is just hoping it's about interest rates, but it's about the bank failures, the debt ceiling, and so much more. What a great point, though, Rick. This is kind of the news conference that the president's supposed to be having, isn't it? Yeah, but the reality is he's a he's he's basically thrown all this into Jay Powell's lap. Remember, it wasn't that long ago where he he held a press conference and said, hey, don't talk to me about inflation. That's Chairman Powell's job. And and the minute that happened, he deferred. Mm hmm. And here we are. Uh, you know who we haven't seen a lot of, uh, Jeannie, and I don't really know what the strategy is here, but Lael Brainerd, since she went into the White House, when does she start showing up more to make the case herself for, for the White House's economic policy? Yeah, you know, she seems to be taking a page out of Joe Biden's book. She's laying back for right now, letting the Fed handle it. You know, I do think that this is such a challenge for the White House. So she probably does need to get out there. Certainly, she needs to be a surrogate for the president on this issue. You're right. We haven't seen her much. And there is so much for her to address. And they do have some important and positive things to talk about. We can't forget that. But the issue has been in the the, you know, the sort of frustration with the press is that the president has not been there to answer those questions. Yeah. But in his mind, he got this far without, you know, being, you know, close to the press and without answering a lot of questions. So why start now? He's going to let Donald mm. Trump go on CNN next week and he's going to go back to his <laughs> Rose Garden strategy. Yeah, the three of us still need to talk about that. <laughs> uh, we have less than one minute, Rick. How important will it be today for Jay Powell to soothe the markets and tell us that the system is sound and resilient? Yeah, he needs to get everybody to the point where we can, you know, sort of sigh of relief in the sense that there's a plan, that his plan can work and that they're going to implement it uh, effectively. But I would say, where is Joe Biden? I mean, he's got the worst economic numbers of any president in the modern history. Wow. And he is the one who should be talking to the American public. Great chat with our signature panel, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. Thank you, guys. We'll do this again here tomorrow on the fastest show in politics. Faster than usual today. Thanks again to Congressman Henry Cuellar as well. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. Do you love Elon Musk? 
Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 